Hi, welcome to the Midtown Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check out our website and social media. And now, this week's message. We're excited. I, I, um, I'm excited to jump in to a, um, to a study this morning that we've been, we've been pursuing together. Like We've been talking about the life of Elijah. We'll talk more about that in just a second. As I was praying for you this morning, I was praying about the fact that what we have in front of us, these Bibles, like we get to look at the Word of God. Can we just be in awe of that for a minute? Like, like this, yeah, we, we get to look at his word. Like this word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which has been preserved for us for thousands of years, right? Somebody wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about that this morning. I'm like, when we look in this book, when we read what the Lord says, we're connecting with something that is ancient, and sacred, and people are teaching us through, through time. The Lord is teaching us and shaping our thoughts through studying this word. And I never want to take that for granted. What a miracle it is that we even have this to begin with. Several weeks ago, we began retelling kind of the greatest hits of the Old Testament, the stories from children's church or Sunday school, if you grew up in church, the ones from Veggie Tales, or maybe stories you've heard that even if you didn't grow up in church, like you somewhat picked up on these over time. We're looking through these stories again as adults with fresh eyes, with adult eyes. We're going to see if they look a little different now that we got some years under our belts. We're going to reapproach them and see if the Lord would speak to us, teach us, and, and, and help us see how he works with people. Because the way he worked with people then in these stories is the way he works with people today. It hasn't changed. He, he hasn't gotten smarter. He hasn't gotten better at dealing with us, right? The way he worked with people then is the way we, he works with us Today, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there can be patterns that we find in these stories about how God deals with us. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Open up to the book of 1 Kings again. 1 Kings. We're going to be 17 chapters in. So, 1 Kings comes right before 2 Kings. You may want to use your table of contents. If you don't have a Bible, you can tell that we take studying this Bible very seriously. Jay's got a stack back there. We give these away. If you didn't bring one, you forgot to, go grab one or just raise your hand. He'll bring it to you. If you don't own a Bible, we want to give you that Bible. Like You can put your name in it and it will be yours. If you have a device, we always say turn off the notifications because the enemy knows that you're about to read life-changing words. And so you ever find that when you pull out your Bible, to uh, your phone to read your Bible, it's like all of a sudden you start getting all these notifications. It's like somebody's going, hey, 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 look over here. You know, these Bibles that we ordered for this room don't have notifications. Like we paid extra. Um, so anyway, we're going to look in First Kings. The book of First Kings in the Old Testament provides an account for us of what times were alive after the death of King David and King Solomon, a time when the entire kingdom caves to idol worship. The kingdom splits, people sin egregiously, and the Lord consistently provides voices pointing out the right way. First Kings catalogs the ministry of one of these prophets, a man named Elijah. We met this man last week. 
A man who literally comes out of obscurity, comes up onto the scene as a grown man with a word in his mouth for the entire nation, for the entire kingdom. He comes from nowhere, from obscurity. We don't know how many years old he is. We don't know where he was. We know he's from Tishbe. That's about all we know. And he comes onto the scene and spills upon the pages of the text and just lets us know, lets the kingdom know, there will not be a drop of rain until I say so. And that's a death sentence, especially in an agricultural society. So after giving this word, we talked last week about how the Lord led Elijah, you guys remember this, to a brook. He cared for him there in this supernatural way, despite there being a drought in the land. He fed him supernaturally through the careful instruction and care of ravens scavenger birds who brought food to him twice a day. The brook watered him, babbling beneath his feet. But after some time, at no fault of Elijah's, you remember reading this last week, the brook dried up. And we just kind of camped out there last week. This story continues, and it's a great story. We explored last week the implications of the brook drying up upon our own lives. We discuss times in our lives in which the brook dries up. These may not be bad times. They may instead be times we said of transition, times of continued progress, and times of continued journeying with the Lord. Times when the Lord is leading us into new seasons of life. He uses the dried out brook as a road sign to redirect us. What's tricky and we, we scratched the surface on this, but I want to go a little bit further with it today. What's tricky is we may not always recognize it as such. We, we, we may bang our heads against a dead end thinking that we can get the brook to turn back on. So how do you know when it's God? What are the indications that it is God who is working and not just yourself? How do you know when the Lord is leading you and not you leading you? How do you know when what you are experiencing is the result of your own choices or your own responsibility or irresponsibility? We're going to have these questions somewhat answered, somewhat illustrated this morning in the life of Elijah because the way God worked with people then is the way he works with people now. And while there's no tweetable fortune cookie statements in here that answer our questions, there are some deductions that we can make about the character of God and the way that he leads through change as we study this story. So let's pick up in the verse that became sort of our mantra last week. Verse 7, uh, verse seven chapter 17, verse 7. The author writes that sometime later, remember this, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. What we see here in this verse is that often new seasons in our lives come as the result of crisis. And I want to say that again. New seasons, new futures, new chapters, new tomorrows often come as the result of a perceived crisis. Something that is perceived by us to be a crisis. Some disruption, some disturbance, some catastrophe. Some end to what has always been normal to us. What has always seemed predictable. We see that in this story. You are humming along in your humdrum, uninspiring, unsurprising, scheduled existence. The ravens come at nine. The ravens come at five. They bring meat and bread. 
and the brook babbles. Then tomorrow, the ravens come at nine, the ravens come at five, they bring meat and bread, the brook babbles. And then the next day, the ravens come at nine, the ravens come at five, they bring meat and bread, the brook babbles. We experience what Elijah may have experienced, monotony, supernatural, but monotonous. And then all of a sudden, it stops. There's a disturbance. A job ends. A relationship ends. Someone is injured. Someone is born. Someone dies. Someone is promoted. Someone is fired. These are transition points in our lives, disruptors, periods in life involving changes to our lifestyles. And we struggle to adjust. We change. These periods are highly stressful, even distressing. And we can stand at a dried out brook like Elijah and yell, I'm going to starve to death out here. Do you ever wonder, the Bible doesn't say, I wonder if Elijah hollered up at heaven. I wonder how long the brook had dried out. I wonder how long it had sat dry. I wonder how long the ravens had stopped delivering the food before he started listening for the Lord. What we find is that it's through these disturbances that the Lord seeks to communicate with us in regards to a new direction, a new season, a new future that he sees for us. If you're taking notes, something you may want to jot down in the margins, and it's based upon the life of Elijah, it's this. When the brook dries up, start listening. When the brook dries up, start listening. If Elijah had continued to enjoy the endless supply of water provided by a babbling brook, if he'd continued to enjoy continued sustenance from the supernatural obedience of scavenger birds who are programmed to eat what they find, it is miraculous that they brought him food. But if he had not ceased to experience that, he wouldn't have heard from God. A crisis has to occur. God has to turn off the brook. God has to cease the provision of the birds. The same can be true for you. When the Lord is leading you into something new, it will most likely come as the result of some interference in what you've always perceived as normal or predictable. Something happens that appears from our vantage point to be disruptive. So when this happens, start listening. Get excited. Listen for his voice. And how do you know the voice of God? Well, we said already, if you're taking notes, the call of God in your life might involve a crisis. That's normally a sign. The call might involve a crisis. Whenever God is calling you to make a change, it may seem to you or appear to you as a crisis. You guys heard of inflection points? In mathematics, they call an inflection point a point on a curve at which the change in direction of the curvature I may surprise you as being kind of a math whiz. Like you probably, I'm just joking. I'm not good with numbers. In life though, inflection points are the same. It's a time of significant change in a situation, a turning point, a crossroads, an occasion where you have choices in front of you, different steps and choices you can make depending on where you want to go. The difficulty for many of us may be recognizing who is behind the inflection. I wonder if it took Elijah a minute to realize it was God who turned off the brook. I wonder if it took him a minute to realize that it was him who stopped the birds. 
When you forget that God stands behind the curtain, when you forget that God is sovereign, when you forget that he is in control of everything, then in your self-reliance, which is not a bad thing, but in your self-autonomy, which is also not a bad thing, and your integrity and independence and responsibility, which are all good things, these good things may cause you to forget God that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that it might be he who turned off the brook and commanded those ravens. This can be easy for self-reliant people like us to forget, to overlook. Whatever brook has dried up in your life may seem to you to be your fault. And this is important because if it seems to be your fault, if it seems to be something you have power or responsibility for, then you'll be tempted to negotiate it or try to fix it. Have you seen that before? Literally, people banging their heads up against a wall that the Lord closed, not realizing it's him on the other side of it. And we end up unintentionally fighting against God, pushing back against God, opposing God, all in the name of being godly. People like us, self-starters, independent, no handout people, we can be slow to realize that it's God in some cases orchestrating the thing that we're pushing back against. There are untold seasons of my own life when I failed to recognize God was drying up the brook. So I began fighting and negotiating and almost like trying to sweet talk the brook into flowing again, right? I began chasing after and pleading with birds, ravens. Could you please bring me some food again? Convinced it was my fault. In retrospect, what I should have done is asked, God, why are you drying up this brook? Because it comes from a good place, a place that is heralded and valued in our culture. America is a self-starter, pull yourself up by the bootstrap society. But in this way of thinking, which is good, too much of it can be dangerous. And we begin to give ourselves too much credit. We assign ourselves way too much blame. Have you ever noticed that? And sometimes I think we just need to remember, we just need to know that you are not strong enough to thwart God's will or tie God's hands. (laughs) Isn't there some kind of relief there? You are not, you are not so powerful. You are not so strong that you can thwart his will or tie his hands. If you could, that would make you God. And believing turning the brook back on is under your control is dangerous and can lead to some dangerous places. Now, I want to be clear. Some disturbances we experience in life are crises, and the Lord is not causing them. What we have to be careful with is assigning them to him. While he might not be causing them, the Bible does teach that he does allow certain things. And there's a big difference there between causing and allowing. Some disruptions in our lives are caused by God, And if he causes them, he'll use them. But some are allowed by him. We see that in Job's story. There has to be a permission that is sought first. And the Lord allows those things. And the Bible teaches too, if he allows them, he will use them. He will use them to to shape you. But many of us are slow to recognize the God behind the crisis, so we respond directly to the crisis. We immediately begin negotiating a solution. We desire to remedy the situation. The brook dried up. God, you gave me this job. 
And now it looks like this job is coming to an end. God, let me see if I can fix this. Imagine if Elijah had done this. The brook dries up and he begins going to the brook and asking, trying to get the brook to turn back on. He would have wasted away out there in the desert trying to get that thing flowing again. The ravens stopped bringing him food. He could have chased down ravens and tried to plead with them, please give me more food. But he would have died of starvation out there. Oswald Chambers once wrote that when the Lord is leading us to take a step that we're not willing to take, when he's leading us to move in a direction that we're reluctant to move in or unwilling to move in, he will often make things increasingly difficult for us until we have no choice but to change. Often he'll make it harder and harder for us to stay where we are. He'll make it more and more unbearable to remain where we are till we have no other choice but to move. We can be slow to recognize his providence or his direction from behind the curtain. And so instead, in our own power, we begin trying to fix the problem. And this is dangerous. We're going to get back to the story. We're going to see all of this illustrated in just a minute. The danger of us for remaining in toxic or even abusive situations, whether it's a relationship that you don't want to see come to an end, a job you don't want to see change, a family situation that is destroying you from the inside out, the danger of these toxic systems is we can trick ourselves into believing that we're just one or two good conversations away from things getting better. And we can stay at that dried out brook and starve to death in the process. Oh, you don't know him like I do. It's about to change. He just had a bad season. Oh, you don't, like, if I can just, man, we had a good conversation last week. I, I'm praying that we'll have another good one this week, and things will turn around. And we stay in these toxic environments that the Lord has not asked us to stay in. And we hurt ourselves. And the scars of those toxic situations can last a lifetime. Imagine if Elijah had done this. He would have wasted away into an emaciated skeleton had he stayed at that brook when God said leave. He would have wasted his time pleading with brooks and talking to ravens. And so finally, verse 9, he left. 1 Kings 17.9 says, the Lord told Elijah, go at once, circle, underline, at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. I'm chuckling. I can't help but chuckle because there's so much here. You almost don't know where to start. If you're Elijah, we said this last week, you say, what? Zarephath? If you don't know, that's where, that's where the woman who's put a bounty out on his head is from, right? You remember Jezebel? She's the lady in the Old Testament that was like so ungodly that no one names their kids Jezebel today, right? That name is off limits. I predicted last week, and when I said that, I was like, somebody's going to email me this week and be like, I have an aunt named Jezebel. No one did. So as far as I know, there's no one named Jezebel. And she's why. And God goes, hey, the brook is dried up. I want you to go to her hometown, if you're Elijah, you're like, wait, hold on. You, you, I don't think I need to be hanging out in the hometown of the lady who wants to kill me. And God goes, I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Oh, a okay, maybe you don't get, widows in this day and age are poor. 
like notoriously poor. Not to mention, we're in a drought right now, God. Everyone's poor. Nobody, so everybody's poor during a drought, and a widow is the poorest of the poor. So how is she going to provide for me in a drought? No offense, God, but it makes more sense to me to wait beside this dry brook. It seems like a smaller miracle for you to use a dry brook and birds flying in from nowhere, my order, right? God's voice, doesn't it often sound strange? You're like, wait a minute, is this God talking? Okay, did I hear you right? A widow in Zarephath? Okay, I think that's God's voice. How do you know when it's his voice? How do you know when it's not just your imagination? If you're taking notes, I, I thought you might write this down. And this is based on a work by Oswald Chambers. God's voice, the call of God in your life, is not always clear. The call of, your, of God in your life is not always clear. And, and I think this is important to say, because sometimes we come into our relationship with God looking for a roadmap thinking that he's going to give us a set of directions, right? But it's not always clear. It does not always contain a roadmap. In fact, most times it does not. And sometimes I get nervous when I meet folks who are like, God told me exactly what I'm going to do with my life. And I'm like, oh boy, I think you might have told you exactly what you're going to do with your life. I don't know if that was God. Because when I look at these stories, what I see illustrated time and time and time again is that the call of God in our lives isn't always very clear. And that's not a bad thing. If God's not been clear with you, hallelujah. He's working in your life the way he worked with millions of saints before you. Take refuge. In, it's not always very clear. And if it is clear, it might change. Like he, he might call you to something else. You might write your plans in pen and he goes, oh boy, you should have used a pencil, right? Like when Elijah's looking out of his situation and God goes, I want you to go to Zarephath. And he's like, okay, where? And he's like, and there's a widow there. He's like, okay, who? Like this makes no sense because it's not always clear. But Elijah has learned something about God and he's learning something about God. He's getting prepared for his next season of ministry. We said that last week. So verse 10, he goes to Zarephath, is what the author says. When he came to the town gate, this is so funny to me. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks like you do. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord, your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Uh, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home to make a meal for myself and my son. That way we may eat it and die. And Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. <laughs> this is an amazing story. 
The call of God is not always clear in our lives, and it's certainly not clear in this case. Elijah begins making his way, verse 10 says, towards Zarephath. He doesn't know what to expect. I bet the whole way, if he's anything like me, he's muttering under his breath, like, oh, sure, a widow in Zarephath. Yeah, during a drought. She's going to, okay. I, I wonder if he began trying to reason it out in his mind, like maybe there's a rich widow. Like maybe that's a thing. Maybe in Zarephath that's a thing, right? Widows in the ancient world were not, were not, were not rich. They were often the poorest of the poor. And this is a day and age when women had no status outside of the man that they were married to. And when the man you're married to dies, you have no status. You have no way to to be sustained, right? And so often in this day and age too, they would designate themselves with a particular piece of clothing. So much so that as, as Elijah approaches, he sees this widow. He can recognize that she is a widow. The foreign widow is the most disenfranchised person in the ancient world. And so as, he, as he's walking towards her, he's remembering verse 9. You guys remember verse 9? Verse 9, the Lord said, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So Elijah is probably expecting to find someone who's expecting him. Like, who has already been told by God, all right, there's going to be this prophet walking towards you. He's going to be real dry because he hadn't had water in a while. He's going to be real skinny, right? So you take care of him when he gets there. Have you ever been in a position like that? Well, when, when you're expecting to contact someone who you thought was expecting to hear from you, and then you're like, oh boy, no one gave you a heads up that I was coming, did they? Like they had, no, I bet she's looking at him like, what do you want? And he's looking at her like, uh, okay, God said that he had given you a heads up that I was coming, right? So this awkward, awkward situation. Elijah's awkwardly standing there probably waiting for her to offer him what he needs. And he's just made his way from east of the Jordan, like some 50, 60 miles in a drought, dry terrain, desert. God told Elijah he'd commanded the widow to feed the prophet, yet this woman seems unaware of the command. Doesn't this show how God's unseen hand often works? She doesn't appear to have been at all aware that she was supposed to feed this guy. She went out that morning to gather sticks, not to meet a guest. And she's thinking about feeding her son, and herself, the last bit of bread that they have. She certainly has no idea of sustaining a man of God out of her empty barrel. But the Lord doesn't lie. He spoke to Elijah a solemn truth when he said he'd commanded a widow there to take care of him. I wonder if God had so operated upon her mind that he had prepared her to obey the command when it did come through the mouth of his prophet Elijah, which illustrates sort of our our next point, something you may want to jot down. The call of God in your life is not always the result of your own ideas. The call of God, when he's directing us, when he's leading us, is not always the result of our own ideas. Certainly, Elijah had some expectation for how this exchange would go, and he was surprised to find out that it wasn't going to go this way at all. I love what Chambers writes. He says, the call of God becomes clear as we obey. Never as we weigh the pros and cons and try to reason it out. The call of God is his idea, not our idea. And only on looking back over the path of obedience do we realize what is the idea of God because he sanctifies our memories. When we hear the call of God, it is not for us to dispute with God and arrange to obey him if he'll expound his meaning to us. 
As long as we insist on having the call expounded, we will never obey. But when we obey, it is expounded. And in looking back, there comes a chuckle of confidence. He doeth all things well, we say. Before us there is nothing, but overhead there is God, and we have to trust him. If we insist on explanations before we obey, this is powerful, we lie like clogs on God's plan and put ourselves clean athwart with his purpose. There's so much there. The calling of God in our lives becomes clear as we obey. Most often the way we see this in our lives is that once we start taking steps, God reveals a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Remember King David writes and Kevin shared a few weeks ago, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Not high beams at midnight, right? It's a, it's a flashlight, one step at a time. The reason I mention this is there are those times we have ideas about how our lives will go, how our seasons will go, how our next chapters are going to run. And God changes it up a little bit, doesn't he? He switches it up and he asks us to trust him. Elijah had no idea how this story would unfold, which makes me go, when we have a specific plan in mind, we need to be careful. When we know exactly what we're going to do, we need to be careful. That might be your plan, not his. You meet someone who goes, oh, God told me to quit my job. So I could be a social media influencer. I'm going to get 4 million followers on Instagram and I'm going to inspire them to follow Jesus. And I go, okay, that sounds like your plan, right? Because that's very specific. It's not always like that. It doesn't always work that way. Elijah didn't know that God would work a miracle with this widow. He just knew he couldn't stay at the brook and that he'd meet a widow on his way to where he was going. When God tells us to follow him, he rarely tells us where. And the consequences must be left entirely to him. We have nothing to do with what will happen if we obey. We have to recklessly abandon ourselves to God's call in unconditional surrender and wash our hands of the consequences. And the Bible calls this faith, not fate. Fate is stoicism. Fate is stoic resignation to some unseen force. What God is calling us to is a life of faith. Not fate. Faith is not stoic resignation to an unknown force, some power that we don't know. Faith is committal to, committal to one whose character we do know because it has been revealed to us in Jesus. And we talked about this last week. A God who would do all of that for us. Every other religion has what man must do to try to get to God. Christianity is the only religion where God becomes one of us and does everything necessary to get to us. And Paul kind of looks on that in the book of Romans and he goes, man, if he, would do, if he wouldn't even spare his only son for us, how will he not freely give us all things? A God who would do that? Uh, what we're taught is that faith is understanding, okay, based on your character displayed in the person of Jesus, I can trust you. If you have a call that is completely figured out, that might not be him. It might be you. But if you have a call that is a little bit foggy, that might, and you take a step, and you take a step, and he gives you a little bit more, and a little bit more. And Elijah is standing now in front of this lady who, he's under the impression, has heard from God. 
And maybe it was a canary in the coal mine type of situation. Maybe he was looking for a tell, a sign that she had heard from God. So he asked for a glass of water, which is so funny to me, in the middle of a drought uh, of a dying widow. Verse 10, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? (laughs) It doesn't say it, but don't you imagine there was a little side eye there? Like, seriously? Like, who is this guy? Uh, A little side, like, okay, water in a drought from a widow. Yeah, let me just go get your water, right? Common sense and circumstance told Elijah this widow would not give water so generously to a stranger in the middle of a drought, but faith made him ask. See, I came into this story thinking it was a story about the faith of the widow. And it does become that. But it starts as the faith of Elijah. And Elijah, who has to put his faith into action, he's learning some things about the faithfulness and the provision of God when he takes steps in faith. And these steps in faith are going to be important for the mission God has for him Later, there's going to be a pretty amazing encounter in just a couple of chapters. And this was all a time of preparation. And maybe the same is true of you. These little steps along the way, God is using to grow your faith, to strengthen your faith for what he has for you later. Don't minimize, don't underestimate what he's doing in your life right now. Elijah is going to need to be strengthened in his faith for the journey that he has ahead, the mission that God has for him. He's going to play a pivotal role, you guys may know this, in the nation of Israel and all of scripture. It's one of the most epic encounters in all of scripture. This is a strengthening of his faith. He needs to know that his God could be trusted. And so he floats something out there. He goes, can you get me a glass of water? And he braces. She's going to hit me. (laughs) Verse 11, as she was going to get it. This is so funny to me. He takes one step and then he's like, oh boy, I got to say it now. I got to say it. Clearly God didn't tell her I was coming. As she's going to get it, he calls (laughs) the nerve. He goes, and bring me a piece of bread too. And this request, you see it in the story. This request sends her over the edge. This was certainly putting her faith to an extraordinary trial to take and give to a stranger of whom she knows nothing. You remember? I mean, she whips around. Verse 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives, which is powerful. She's distancing herself. from. She's like, all right, hold on. Like, okay, I was going to give you water. Like, I, I, was, I didn't know if I was going to give you water, but I'm willing to give you water. And you just asked for bread. So she whips around. She's like, as surely as the Lord, your God lives. I, I mean, your God's what got me into this mess. Your God's why I ain't got no water, right? Your God is why I'm out gathering sticks so that my son and I can begin dying. That part really strikes me, by the way. And she's not, she's saying, we're going to make one last, I'm getting sticks so I can make a fire, we're going to bake some bread, we're going to eat it, and then we're going to die, right? But think about it, they're not going to eat it and then die, they're going to eat it and then begin to die, right? They're going to begin to starve to death. This is the beginning of the road for them. It's a long road to starvation. It's a long road to death by starvation. She's about to undergo something horrible, horrible. She's going to eat the bread, and that's going to be it. And then in a day, her son is going to say, Mom, my stomach hurts. I'm hungry. And she's going to have to say, I know. We don't have anything else. And then in another day, he's going to say, Mom, my stomach hurts. I'm hungry. They're going to begin to starve to death. And that could take a while. 
They'll eat, and it'll be your last, their last. And she says all this to him, verse 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives. It's almost like she resents this God. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. A circle and die. It's more like and begin to die. And she'll have to watch and wait as they die. She'll have to watch and wait her, her son die. In verse 13, Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. <laughs> I love that this is God's first word to the widow through Elijah. One of the most repeated commands in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Her present crisis made her afraid. And God wanted to put away her fear and replace it with trust in him. This, I think, is where we begin to see the transference of faith in God from Elijah to the widow. This begins to become the story not just of Elijah's growing, strengthening faith, but now hers as a result. God chose this woman, but he chose her for more than a miracle. He chose her for service. And so Elijah makes an audaciously bold request because God told him to. He told him that he would provide a never-ending supply of food for the widow, her son, and Elijah himself. He asked the widow to put her trust in the great promise of God. And that's a tall order. And if you're reading this for the first time, it's like, okay, you're hanging on every word. You're like, is she going to do it? Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. I read this as a kid and I'm like, wait, she actually did it? She took a step. And it's the same step that Elijah took. A step that involved a crisis. Remember what we said about God's call on our lives. It usually starts with the crisis. She takes a step that involves a crisis. Same one Elijah took. A step that wasn't clear. She doesn't know this is going to happen. This is not how she would write the story. A step that wasn't the result of her own ideas. She didn't say, you know what we should do? We should bake some and give it to the prophet. And I bet there will be some left in the jar, right? She doesn't manufacture the, the, the steps. She doesn't engineer these steps. But these steps show complete trust in the Lord. They put her faith, what little there might be, into action. Faith in the Bible, we've said this before, but if you want a definition for it, it's trusting God enough to do what he says. Trusting God enough to do what he says. The emphasis on the word enough. Because sometimes that's, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just one foot out over that line, huh? I think for her in this story, it's just one. She doesn't know if she can trust him. So she trusts him enough. Just enough to do what he says. Just enough to bake that bread and give it to the prophet. And it's a miracle as a result. A miracle of daily bread is what Jesus prayed. The miracle of having just enough for just the day they were in, and then the next one, and then one after that. What we're going to find as the story continues, as, as you read on, is that in coming time, this boy that the widow has to look after, he dies. 
And he's resurrected, spoiler alert, by Elijah. And there comes to be a chain reaction of faith in this story. A chain reaction of Elijah leaving the brook, walking out into the unknown, but guided by a known God, a God whose character we know, displayed in the cross. And his faith, the strengthening of his faith, the steps that he took in order to grow his faith, ends up becoming the faith of a dying widow. She receives faith. She comes to faith. And her son comes to faith. Isn't it true we never know what lies in the balance of our faith? Or or maybe who lies in the balance of our faith or our, our obedience? When God calls us to take a step, and it's scary, and it involves a crisis, and it's not always clear, and it's not the result of our own ideas as we weigh out the pros and cons or maneuver It's not the result of our cleverness or shrewdness when we take that step. We never know who we might inspire along the way. I would argue that in this story, the faith of the next generation happens as the result of this generation. So Elijah and the widow pass on some faith. Parents, grandparents, your faith, your continued obedience, though it may come as a result of a crisis, Though you may be walking through something that doesn't seem so clear, though it may not always be the result of your ability to plan ahead, though it seems scary and unpredictable, this might be an opportunity to inspire the faith of those who come after you. The story of the brook becomes the story of a strengthened Elijah, then the story of a redeemed widow, then the story of a resurrected child. So, it's fun to talk about, but there always comes the so what. You know, in the Bible, it's so interesting. When you read these stories, I I get caught up in the what. I love the what. The what is the description of the story. This is an amazing story. But we covered the what. There's always a pivot to the so what. So what does this mean for you? So maybe some questions. What step are you afraid of taking? What is it that God has put on you? Something that he's calling you to that you've been kind of going, oh, I don't know. Because your crisis, your present crisis might be the gateway for someone else's faith. When we see that in the story, your disruption might be an opportunity. Your dry brook might set the stage for a grand display. That's, I mean, all of that is true here. If you trust God enough to do what he says. So the question becomes, God, what do you say? What are you asking me to do? What are you calling me to? So on this dreary, gray, daylight saving Sunday, I'm going to ask you to do me, can we close our eyes for a second? Some of you did a while ago. It's cool. I get it. I know you've been praying. I want to ask, what is God saying to you through this story? So we agreed at the beginning of this that the Lord speaks through his word. What is he saying? What step are you avoiding? What dry brook are you trying in your own power? to retrieve water from? 
What raven have you been chasing or shouting at? What is God calling you to? Is there a change up ahead that you're afraid to make? In your attempt to make things work, could you have unintentionally been squaring off with a God who's purposefully keeping things from working out in hopes that you'll make a change? Could the faith of somebody else be hanging in the balance? See, what we find in this story is something so important. And kind of a final exclamation and a list of points regarding God's call in our lives. The call of God isn't to a thing. We like to say that. We like to say God's calling me to this job or calling me to this circumstance or calling me to this school or situation. But the call of God is not to a thing. The call of God in your life is always to himself and to himself only to journey on with him, to trust him, to walk with him. Maybe you're here and you've never done, maybe you've never surrendered to him. Maybe the gospel to you has always been fear-based your whole life long. This weapon that was used to tell you how much you're not good enough and how you need to try harder. And may you be reminded that what sets Christianity apart, what sets Jesus apart, he's the only one in the world who says, you don't have to earn your way to me. I'm going to do everything necessary to get to you. That's good news. And maybe you've never heard that news. Maybe you've never surrendered to him. The truth is he's moved heaven and earth to get to you. So in this time, this time here at the end, we say every Sunday, there is a world out there that is waiting for you. <laughs> as soon as we say amen and go out these doors, it's off to the races again, to a world full of noise and responsibilities and to-dos and we feel called every Sunday to just carve out one moment, this one, to just pause and to ask that question, God, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me through this message? And in keeping with that, we've created different ways to respond just so that, so that you can have a tangible interaction with the Holy Spirit. There's these kneelers at the front where you can come to pray. We'd invite you to do that in this time. There's a table off to my left, your right, with a white tablecloth where the Lord's Supper is prepared for you. If that's something that you'd like to do, we do it twice a month here together as a family, but if, if you need today to remember, as Jesus says, to arm yourself for the battle, it's another way to respond. You can light a candle up here in prayer. There's nothing special about these candles, but something about placing our hands and moving them. We have connect cards 
that Jay's already told you about, if we can pray for you about something. Or maybe the Lord's calling you to baptism. It's something that you just haven't, haven't done before, a step you've been unwilling to take. You can indicate it on that card and we'll contact you. You can pray right where you are. You don't have to leave your seat at all. Or you can pray with others. Just grab the hand of someone next to you. Again, our goal is to simply give you a time, a moment before it all starts back up where you can take inventory of what the Lord's saying to you. And after just a minute or two, we'll close in a song. And then Ashton will pray over us and she'll say amen. And if it's your first Sunday with us, that's how we close. You're free to go at that point. We've enjoyed worshiping with you. We hope to see you back. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on who we are, check out our website, midtownvineyardchurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave us a review or drop us a comment. Until next time, have a great day.